Bible Church, we love details of Scripture. We're a bunch of Bible geeks. There's nothing that can get a Bible church going more than to geek out on the Bible. You go to one of our adult Bible classes, and it's geeks galore. I mean, let's admit it. We love geeking out on the details of the Bible. We love the Greek. We love the Hebrew. We love the theology. We love the tense. We love the literary style. We love all of that stuff, and we can get into those details and just wallow in them because we love them so much. And that's good. That's really good because there's nothing quite as meaningful as, as reading a text of Scripture and, and, and absorbing it so that the, the meaning of it grabs you in a whole new way. There's a wonderful place for that. But sometimes we get so caught up in the details we lose the forest for all the trees. We, we, we get the little events and the details, but we forget to step back and see what the big picture is intended to see. So the last two weeks, we've looked at details of the life of Barnabas, who I believe is one of the most significant men and one of the most significant people in the beginning of the church, the book of Acts and the New Testament days. Phenomenally important person. And we've looked at specific issues, how he was so generous with his money. He gave a field, set the proceeds at the feet of the apostles, and, and gave it willingly and happily. He was generous with his time. He goes on multiple missionary journeys to take the message of Christ. He invested in others. He invested in Saul. He invested in the Gentile believers. He invested in John Mark, even when John Mark failed. He, he was a man that, whose, whose life reflects um, his encouragement, and, and we've looked at those details. But today I want to take a step back, and we're going to go over all the texts we've already looked at. It's going to be a quick review, but you can handle it. And the reason we're doing it is I want us to get out of the details a little bit and focus on the big picture of Barnabas's life, because if we don't, we miss something really significant. Barnabas is what a friend of mine once called a monomaniac on a mission. A number of years ago, a long time ago, far, land far, far away in Tyler, Texas, a guy named Bob Buford started a ministry called Leadership Network, and, and he, his first employee was a guy named Fred Smith, Jr., and I had the privilege of doing some work with him. And Fred and I were talking one time because they were involved in, in Christian leaders around the world, who, especially in America, who were having a significant impact. And Fred used the phrase I'd never heard before, but I've never quite gotten over it. He says, you know, the ones who really have an impact are the monomaniacs on a mission. The, the monomaniac, a maniac over one thing, and that one thing is the mission they, they believe they've been called to. And that, that focus in their lives causes them to accomplish great things. I want to submit to you that, that Barnabas is significant because he's a monomaniac on a mission. He, he is clearly a nice guy. He's clearly used to the Lord, but to really appreciate him, you have to step back and see just how much he was a monomaniac with a mission. And, and hopefully in seeing that, we'll be helped to ask ourselves, what's our mission? Are we maniacal about anything? First, the place to start is with his name. In Scripture, names are very important. In fact, if one of my professors in seminary wrote his dissertation at Cambridge on the meanings of names in the book of Genesis. Names are the way that God multiplies the impact of someone's character. It describes who they are and what God wants us to see of them. The two easiest examples that we all know about is Jesus. Jesus means Yahweh, the Lord will save. 
And that was his mission. Just as Joshua brought with the same name, Yeshua is Jesus in the Old Testament, brought the people of Israel into the promised land, Jesus brings all those who trust in him into the promised land of God's love. Yahweh will say. What's another name that means a lot in the New Testament? Well, Peter. Remember, Jesus changed Peter's name. He said, Peter, you're a rock. Now, sometimes I think he's a rock head, and that's why I identify with him. He's a, he's a little thick at times, but he says, upon this rock I will build my church. The faith that Peter demonstrated was a foundation upon which Jesus would build this worldwide movement that now today is billions of people around the world. So, in Scripture, names are very important. And when the apostles in the book of Acts first introduces to Barnabas, what does it say? Chapter 4, and they called Joseph from Cyprius Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Barnabas was a man whose life was characterized by encouraging others. And we've already seen that. We saw how he, he encouraged Saul when he first came to faith how he believed in Saul when everybody else was afraid of him. We saw how he encouraged the Gentile church when the Holy Spirit was working among non-Jews and they were accepting this Messiah from Israel. And we saw that Barnabas was the one that gave the endorsement to what God was doing. And we, we saw how he encouraged John Mark when John Mark had failed. He was the one that believed that God's grace could still have an impact through John Mark. By the way, all of us need that kind of encouragement. I was meeting with a good friend at Grace this week, and he was doing what people do, telling me how my sermons weren't good enough. And, and in the course of it, no, it, he really wasn't. Well, anyway, in the course of it, he, he said, you missed the point of his encouragement. What he did was he encouraged. He really encourages people, and he's exactly right. And then my friend made another point, which I think is very significant. That is, encouragement is a ministry that all of us can have. It's a simple ministry. You don't have to be particularly gifted to encourage. You, you have to choose to see the positive, which... That takes some work for some of us, uh, but the reality is encouragement is some, one, something that we can all do. And, and in fact, can I tell you something? Your spouse needs it from you. Your, your spouse needs to be reminded every once in a while that they're valuable. You know, the guy that said, I told my wife I loved her and I'll let her know if there's a change. That doesn't work. You know, the, the reality is that constant reminder of encouragement is exceptionally powerful. Our children need encouragement. They live in an incredibly negative world and with incredibly negative messages. They're not tall enough. They're not smart enough. They're not pretty enough. They're not athletic enough. They're not whatever enough. Our children need their parents to be fans. In fact, Julie and I have realized that even with our kids being adults and doing well in life, they still need us to be their fans because so much of life is critical. In, in the body of Christ, we all need encouragement. We, we need the blessing of other people pointing out that God can use us. One of my favorite proverbs is if they can make penicillin out of molded cheese, then God can do something with you. I mean, what, what more encouragement could someone need? You know what I'm saying? Um, 
The thing that's interesting about Barnabas' encouragement, though, is three different times in the context of his ministry, it speaks of one particular issue. Let me read them to you. Acts 11, chapter 11, verse 23. When Barnabas arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. What is it that he saw that encouraged the work of God's grace in someone's life? Chapter 13, verse 43, when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who who talked with them and urged them, encouraged them to continue what? In the grace of God. Uh, Chapter 14, verse 26, from Italia they sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. What, What... Barnabas had a particular heart to, was encouraging people that he could see God working in them. He could see God's work in them. He could see God's grace in them. And and that message is one we all desperately need to hear. We are all well-schooled in our failures, even those of us who pretend we aren't. Satan's, one of the names for Satan is the accuser. He loves to point out our failings. And one of the great powerful ministries is to come alongside of believers and say, I can see God's hand in your life. I can see God's grace in your life. I can see what God has in store for you. Second thing I want you to see about Barnabas that helps us understand what kind of mission he was a monomaniac for is is that he was a remarkable risk taker. Now, just among us, okay, just us, we're just talking here, okay? We conservatives don't like risk, right? We're biblical conservatives. We love the Bible. We love, we defend the Scriptures. We don't don't like people that abuse the Scripture, and that conservatism kind of runs through all kinds of areas in our lives. But one of the ways it shows up is that we evangelicals don't like risk. Risk makes us nervous. Because after all, the gospel is the most important thing in the world, so you don't want to risk, right? You know what the problem with that is? It's wrong. It's wrong. When you look at the like for Barnabas, every time he stepped out, he took great risk. It was a risk to go out and meet Saul and say, this guy's a good guy. It risked, first of all, that he really hadn't changed. Saul might have beaten his brains out. That's what he was doing to people. And it was a risk of his own credibility with the Jerusalem leaders and saying, I believe in him, trust him, because if, if Saul had disappointed, he, he, would have, he would have been hurt too. I'm reminded of that because I get people asking me to write recommendations for them all the time. And sometimes you think, well, can I say I recommend them except for watch them? You know, is that, you know, and the reality is that, that when, when I recommend them, I'm putting my, my sort of good name on the line. I didn't want to brag. My sort of good name on the line. And the reality is because of that, it's a risk. He took a risk with that. It was a step of faith to him believe that the grace of God was working among the Gentiles. In fact, he went before the Jerusalem council, James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter, and John, and defended the work that God was doing there. And in doing that, that was a significant risk. And he took a risk in betting that John Mark really could overcome his own failure. All of those things 
had downsides that he ignored for the sake of this mission about which he was maniacal. But don't just trust me. The apostles themselves said he was a risk taker. In chapter 15, it says, verse 24, when we have heard, these are the leaders saying, some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your ministry by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, quote, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We American Christians are scared to death that our faith might hurt our business. We're scared to death that our faith might have an impact in our reputation. In much of the world, faith in Jesus bets people's lives. We dare not neglect to see that. Jesus himself felt strongly about risk. For those in my Wednesday morning Bible study, I think I referred to this so you can take a momentary nap while I remind people what happens in Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. I just like to give permission sometimes. Again, it will be like a man, Jesus says, going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, to another one bag, each according to his ability. And he went on his journey, and the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. The one who had two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Then the man who had received the one bag of gold came and said, Master, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering what you have not scattered. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. By the way, do not miss the fact that his actions reflected his opinion of the character of the master. His actions reflected the character of his opinion, his opinion of the character of the master. He said, I did this because you're not a good guy. See, the reason corporate worship is mat matters, singing hymns and spiritual songs together, singing, not just standing there staring, singing the words along, singing, just a hint, anybody getting it here? Singing in church, reason all of that is so important is because it is a way that we remind ourselves of the character of God. Because Satan, the accuser, is always telling us, has God really said that? Does God really want your best? Is God really on your side? And when we remind ourselves of the character of God, that strengthens our faith. That's why worship and praise and song are so important because the more transfixed we get on the goodness and power of God, the easier it is for us to remain faithful to Him. The unfaithful servant says, you know, Master, you're not a good guy. I knew you weren't fair, so I buried your stuff. I wasn't going to take any risk for you. His master replied, verse 26, you wicked, lazy servant. 
So you knew that I would harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have at least received 1.7% interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them and thrown, throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you believe passionately, if you love deeply, you take risks. You do. And you justify your unwillingness to take a risk when you don't based on, oh, I'm, I'm trying to protect. That's what the unfaithful servant did. Oh, oh, no, Lord, I didn't want to lose your money. The master's not worried about that. What's he worried about? You care enough. You care enough to take risks. And, and men and women, we, we in the American church practice safe faith. All too often, we, are, we very carefully manage our faith so that there's no risk involved. Uh, we, we do it in the name of being practical. And, and Scripture has a place for practicality. Book of Proverbs talks about wisdom, and wisdom is, is careful and wise and smart. But, but don't dare use that as an excuse not, not to care enough to risk for the Lord. Because we risk what we care about, right? When it's your kids, you'll do crazy things. You'll take them away to a college and commit to give that college thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars. And you don't even know if they'll open a book. But you care about your kids, so you risk that. Having babies is a risk. Not as much to men, granted, but it's a risk. Heard one father say, wear good shoes. When your wife is having a baby, your feet get really tired. I felt so bad for him. You know what I'm saying? But the things that matter oftentimes include huge risks, but because they matter, we're willing to take them. And the reality is many of us show that our faith doesn't matter that much because we don't risk much for it. It's we practice safe faith. So Jesus, Barnabas was an incredible encourager. He always actively encouraged the work of God's grace in the lives of others. And he, he believed so deeply, he even took pretty remarkable risks so that even the other apostles said, these men have risked their lives for Christ. So what's his mission? What's he so maniacal about? What, what was it that mattered so deeply to him? What had such an impact in his life that he would become this man? Now, hear me. Scripture says that he had property. He must have been a good business person. The Apostle Paul says he has a job. He says, why Paul and Barnabas uh, why do I, we have to support ourselves when everybody else gets offerings? In other words, he had other areas of his life. But when you look at the theme of his life, this constant commitment to his mission is always evident. What is it? I would say he's a bodybuilder. 
He was absolutely committed to building the body of Christ. He, he was a man for whom the work of the Lord Jesus' kingdom overcame everything else. Building of that church, that community of people who were reflections of Jesus, was the overarching theme of all of his life. Now, Paul points out that he made mistakes. In Galatians chapter 2, there, Paul describes in verse 13 that Barnabas had a weak time and rejected Gentile believers because of pressures of the other Jews. He, he wasn't a perfect man. But what does the evidence reveal about Barnabas? The evidence is that every time you look at him, he's building the body of Christ just over and over again. All, all that he does, everywhere he goes, there is this constant attention to building the church. He could have easily been discouraged by the things he saw, but, but he kept throwing his weight behind people like Saul and John Mark because he saw that the grace of God was on them. He, he could have chosen when he went to see the Gentile church to turn away, but, but he, he just kept going in that same direction. And his, his life is just monotonous because the theme of what mattered to him shows up over and over again. He was a monomaniac with a mission. It wasn't the only thing he did, and he, he did many things with his life, but that, that one purpose characterized all he did. Now, I know some of you think, well, he was a preacher. The Bible says he was a prophet and a preacher. He was clergy. He probably had one of those weird collars, and therefore it, he had to do it, right? Um, but hear me. Uh, being a preacher doesn't guarantee you anything. I got a call from a dear friend who is in Houston. His dad, True Pollard, was a very special friend of mine. And Jeff called me, texted me this week on Messenger or something that I don't understand. And, and Jeff's job is that he is the service and parts director at a Bentley and Rolls-Royce dealership in Houston. And he said, I thought of you. And I thought, What? Well, he said, our three biggest groups of customers are first professional athletes. Well, I get that. that I mean, I can see them driving Bentleys and Rolls Royces. And secondly, rappers. And third, preachers. Ouch. See, being a preacher doesn't guarantee anything. You can be a preacher and just be as committed to all the other things just as easily as anybody else. If you want to see what someone's mission is, you have to watch their feet. The Apostle John in the first epistle refers to the walk of faith. Over and over again, the walk of faith. A hugely important word to John. Why is that? Because when you watch people walk through their lives, you find out what their mission really is. 
See, let me give you one way to evaluate it. When you get up in the morning, on what basis will you decide if your day was a success or failure? If, if, if your day is a success or failure simply because no one hassled you, your food was good, and you got to bed on time, then your purpose might be your personal comfort. If, if the success or failure of your day is determined by how your favorite college football team did, and the first thing you did was put on an orange shirt, or and, and if, if, if your team winning or losing determines how you respond to the people close to you, then that may be an indication of what your purpose is. If it's the deals you closed, if it's the conversations you had. See, it's that walk, that day-to-day walk that reveals what your mission is. And for Barnabas, over and over again, his mission is shown by where he walked. He walked to encourage the work of the grace of God in other people's lives, to build the church, to encourage kingdom work. You can say it all kinds of ways, but fundamentally, Barnabas wanted to be a part of what God was doing, and that characterized everything he did all the way. And that's why he's so important. So what's our purpose? I didn't tell the first service this. I wish I had because they'd actually know who I'm talking about. Yesterday, okay, I've got a confession. I like pens. I collect fountain pens. I have spent a ridiculous amount of money in our marriage for fountain pens. Go over and pat Julie in the back and say, I'm sorry that you've gone without because your husband buys fountain pens. And there is actually a pen show in Dallas once a year. It's the geekiest group of people I've ever seen in my life. But I'm happy to say I always see Ramesh Richard there who started his ministry here and is internationally known. And Mark Bailey, the president of Dallas Seminary, often goes. So there are three of us who are theologically geeky about pens. And um, so I was going to the pen show, and of course I bought a pen, and then I had to confess it to my wife. And then as I was leaving the pen show, I ran into Doug. Now, many of you don't know that before Grace, I had always been a Presbyterian. And the last Presbyterian church I attended, we were there with Doug and his wife. And I hadn't seen Doug in years until I ran into him at a pen show a while back, and he he was there again. And we got talking about pens. And he said, are you still at that church? I said, yes, I'm at Grace. Doug moved from East Dallas to Rowlett, but he drives to Stonebriar in Frisco because he wants to hear good preaching. And so we got to talking. He said, now, Grace, is that where Ellis Reed went? And I said, yeah, I did Ellis's funeral. Now, most of y'all don't know Ellis. Ellis and his brother Walter and his sister lived in the same house they grew up in in Park Cities, and, and Ellis was the last surviving. None of them married. When Ellis became a deacon, at his testimony before the church, he said, Walter and my sister and I were all happy single, so we didn't see any point in ruining it by getting married. Wasn't exact, we didn't use him for marriage conferences, but he was an incredibly sweet man. And Ellis' family owned Reed's Hardware in East Dallas on Mockingbird, famous. And Doug, when he first moved to Dallas, lived near Reed's Hardware. He said, I remember Papa Reed. I think that's what he called him. I never met Mr. Reed, Ellis' dad. He said, 
he would check you out, and while he was taking your money, he'd say, do you know Jesus? And there were signs in the hardware store about their faith. And Ellis was quirky. I have a picture in my office of Ellis when he had a growth on the top of his bald head. He had had it cut off, and to protect it, he taped a Dixie cup on top of his head and came to church that way. That's quirky, right? Wasn't a huge Dixie cup, but it was, you know. Um, and I only knew Ellis during his retirement after the Reed's hardware was closed, but Every time I knew Ellis, he was actively involved in spreading the gospel. For a while, his thing was he, we would, he would come collect theological books from all of us, and then he'd pay the shipping of a whole container of books to pastors in Africa, which is incredibly expensive. And, and then he went to Dallas Seminary and volunteered in the mailroom. That way, they wouldn't have to pay someone to do the job. And in doing the volunteering in the mailroom, he met the international students and realized that many of their spouses couldn't speak English. So he started teaching the spouses of international students English. And it was just all about building the body in his quiet, quirky, Dixie cup way. Ellis just... And, and this guy, Doug Cox, who met Ellis through Reed's Hardware, first person he thought of when he thought of Grace Bible Church, and the first thing he thought of about Ellis was how consistently he and his family worked to spread the gospel, to build the church, and to love other people in the name of Christ. Now, you hear me. You don't have to tape a Dixie cup on your head to do this. But encouraging the work of God, encouraging the impact of God's grace for the sake of our Lord's church is a mission worth giving your life to. When you study leadership, you know, we live in a fast action society. We, we, we talk about someone really having an impact over five years, as if that's something. Um, our, our speaker for Outreach Sunday next week, Chris Simmons, has had phenomenal impact in South Dallas. Blows me away. You know why? He's been there 30 years faithfully serving. You know how long that is? Twice as long as I've been your pastor. Now, that sounds like an eternity, doesn't it? 30 years, a long obedience in the same direction. Chuck Colson, who gave his redeemed life to the care of our nation's prisoners, to be more human in the way we treated those who were sent to prison, gave decades of his life to that. His hero is William Wilberforce, who, who God used to end the British participation in the slave trade, who gave decades of his life to that. If, if we're going to have an impact, it means we have to have a mission that we're focused enough and passionate enough about it, not that we make a big fuss over it, but that day after day after day, we get up and we go in the same direction we were yesterday, and in our faithfulness to that, 
And our consistent walk in that direction of spreading the grace of God, of encouraging the work of the grace of God, of building the Lord's church, when we as a people bow our back consistently to that kind of work over decades, that's how God chooses to get things done because he doesn't value flashes in the pan. He values faithful servants of his. And Barnabas doesn't have the name of Paul. We don't even know if he wrote any of the Bible. But he was so consistent in encouraging the work of God's grace wherever he went and in whomever's life he saw. And that's why he's great. He's a monomaniac with a mission. Please pray with me. Father, we confess that we have short attention spans. We want to serve you, but it's inconvenient to do it day after day. We want to serve you, but sometimes our personal comfort or our fears get in the way. Father, cause us to be a people who walk day after day in the same direction, and that is to build your church to spread your grace, to be faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.